Church. Thanks for bringing your praise A game today. Uh, you should have gotten an, a, another hour of sleep last night, so uh, I expect you to be alert. Uh, have your Bibles ready to roll. Uh, and we're going to be back in the book of Ruth today. A couple of just kind of quick things as we get going this morning. Ruth chapter uh, 1 again today. We'll start in verse 19 this morning. Uh, we have about five or six spots left to go on the Israel trip. And so if you have not signed up for that yet and you'd be interested in going and taking a tour of the Holy Land, about 10 days there in Israel and then the travel time on each side, uh, beginning, I think it's the last day of February, and going through, I want to encourage you to do that. It will cause you to read your Bible very differently uh, going forward. You will see uh, a 3D version of everything that you hear taught from the pulpit or what you read uh, devotionally because you're going you're gonna to have stood right there uh, where, where the event took place, whether it's uh, Caiaphas's house, uh, as we, and, and it's right before Easter. So it's going to be a life-changing experience for everybody who goes. My wife and I were able to go last year, or actually it was this year, wasn't it? I guess it was this year. I'm getting old. Uh, it was this year. And, um, I mean, it's just incredible. I've been trying to get over there for years, and we finally got a chance to go. And one of the first things we said was, we got to get NBC over here. we gotta, we got to make a, an appointment and just get it on the calendar and do it. Uh, so you can do it. Uh, go to the website, and uh, all the details are on there. Sign up, and, and we would love to have you. Secondly, uh, the election is coming up this week. And so I know people are a little on edge uh, and stuff like that. But if And I know we also got a lot of new people. So... I wanted to just say, typically the way that we talk about the election here is to not talk about it very much at all. Uh, and, and when we do, uh, we, we handle it the way we do for a couple of reasons. One is, regardless of what takes place, we believe God's in control and we answer to a king uh, of sorts. Uh, Jesus, the one and only king that there is. So we keep our values there. And then I view it as my role as a pastor is to try to help you guys learn what the will of the Lord is through the word of God. And then... The challenge for you is to go figure out, okay, how do I want to, how do I express that in the voting booth, uh, rather than to tell you, hey, vote for this guy or this gal or, or whatever. Um, but you have a chance this week to role model Jesus and how you conduct yourself. Uh, we can be those people that that kind of uh, spray vitriol as though there's a shortage of it. Um, we can go around and and continue to add, uh, you know, fuel to the fire, or we can go out and be instruments of peace and grace. Uh, prior to being in here, we used to be a, a, a polling place. So uh, we would end up with people over there and all sorts of interesting things would happen on voting day. And uh, it, it, I just uh, was glad we could be there as a place to host. But at the same time, it was like, wow. And I don't want us to be those people. Okay, let's go. Honor the Lord coming and going from the booth. Or if you mailed it in already, then 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 just, uh, you know, pray for our country and, and uh, go be instruments of grace and peace. And we'll see you back here next week. Okay. All right, now, Ruth. Ironically, we're talking about the sovereignty of God today. If you read the, the Old Testament particularly, where, you know, the New Testament more or less happens all under Roman rule. So you don't have uh, the story of kingdoms rising and falling and, and all of that like you do in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, though, I don't know if I would say it's the dominant theme, but one of the things that you see unequivocally. It's from the very beginning when man tries to take over for himself in the Garden of Eden, all the way through the kingdoms of the world rising and falling, even Israelite kings rising and falling, doing what's good and right in their own eyes, as is the case in the time of the judges in which Ruth takes place. Uh, that is not a compliment to say that, hey, everybody was doing what was good and right in their own eyes is not something that the scriptures would view as a compliment. So we're not going to try to say, hey, good, Let's role model ourselves. There are things in the Bible that are prescriptive, meaning go do these things. And then there are things that are descriptive, 
They're just telling us what happened. Uh, I'm going to suggest to you today that when we read Ruth, this section of Ruth, this is descriptive. It doesn't mean this is the kind of attitude you ought to have. It's more just this is how Naomi felt. This is how Ruth felt. Uh, and this is what they did. Which, by the way, incidentally, is a good, uh, I think, a fairly good case to be made for the Bible in terms of its veracity. If you were really just trying to uh, write a hype book, you wouldn't include things where people were discouraged or people acted uh, in ways maybe that are not particularly admirable or, or whatever. So uh, as we read this today, and I'll give you just a quick, if you weren't here last week, a quick summary of where we were last week. Uh, you've got basically two widows on the run now. Naomi had moved to Moab with her husband Elimelech and their whole family. And while she's there, Elimelech, her husband, dies, as does her, her two sons. That leaves her with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. They're younger, and so Naomi, basically, as being a, a widow in the ancient world, was a very tough lot, especially if there were no male survivors in the family. And so she knows that her future is looking very bleak at the time. She encourages them to go, be happy, marry, have kids, do your thing. I'm just going to go back to Bethlehem and, and, and die, probably. So that, she says that. Orpah, tearfully, I think, but does decide, hey, I'm going to, to go ahead and live my life. Ruth, on the other hand, says, I'm not leaving you. So I will not only that, but I'm going to follow your God, too. And wherever you go, I'm going to go. So they take off, and they go back to Bethlehem. Just then, uh, after everybody dies, as they're heading back to, to Bethlehem, here's what happens. This is Ruth chapter 1, 19 to 22, when they re-enter Bethlehem. So again, she's lost everything except Ruth. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, here what she's saying. She's saying, don't call me full. I'm not full. I'm empty. And the reason I'm empty is because God stretched out his hand and did this to me. That's an interesting take. You ever been there? You ever been in a spot where you're like, I think I may have upset God at somewhere along the way because my life seems to be wobbling so badly. The loss has to be so significant that I, I can't believe that this just happened. Like there's something that God has done proactively to, to hurt me here. Okay, that's what I want to talk about today. Because that really forms this backdrop of the book of Ruth. We talked last week about the providence of God and we'll continue to do so this week and next. But you'll find yourself, if you haven't yet, you may find yourself in a spot like that where you think to yourself, God did this to me. And I want to just simply ask, okay, is that possible? Did it happen? Is Naomi right? Now we learned from the book of Ruth, no, it's not right. God is not mad at Naomi from all we can tell. But that doesn't keep it from, from feeling like that to her. Because underneath it is this faith that uh, whatever is going on there, uh, that God is in control. 
So this is happening and God's in control, then that means God is somehow superintending the universe and I'm in the universe and so therefore somehow he's responsible for this. So I'll give you a couple of ways that people tend to think about this. And they're, they're like 10 degrees off. They're not totally off, but they're, they're off when they look at the sovereignty of God. One is uh, Hunger Games theology. Hunger Games theology is God and the angels are sitting up there. They watch everything play out. We're all kind of on this journey together. Some people get hurt. Some people die. Some people do this. And God and the angels kind of sit up there and they kind of decide, almost like it's a game. All right, let's send a bag of medicine over there. And let's... Uh, Let's send some food there, and then, uh, but somebody's got to die. So we're just going to pick who lives and who dies in a very arbitrary almost kind of way. And maybe they're up there and they're kind of voting or, or, or doing things. And underneath it is what's called retribution theology is the snotty term for it. That's the idea that uh, God rewards you according to what you do. So if something bad happens to you, God is getting retribution for what's going on. You did something wrong. This is particularly poignant in the book of Job. Job's friends are like, Job, why don't you just repent of whatever you did? And if you're willing to do that, I'm sure God will turn and, and, and uh, lighten up on you. But you clearly made God mad here, so repent. Okay, well, we learn in the book of Job, nobody. He, he didn't do anything wrong. There's something bigger at play. In the New Testament, it takes shape like this. Who sinned, this man or his father? Right? Jesus goes, no, nobody sinned. He's just blind. Well, how's that possible? If God's in control, then why would anybody ever suffer? Surely God's big goal in life is that nobody ever suffers. Is it? What is the goal? Is God in control? So you got Hunger Games. Uh, another one, check this out. You know what these are? These are Powerball tickets. Hey, nobody won last night. $1.9 billion is in the pot. And so these are the winners. One of these two. She accidentally printed one on one, one ticket and the rest on the other one. So you don't even need to go buy one now because these are the winners. See? So you sit there and you go, all right, I bought my ticket. And the more of these I buy, the better my chances of winning are. And when I win, I'm going to win big. So underneath this is the belief God is in heaven. He controls kind of the, 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 uh, the resources of the universe. And he's there and he's up there. And, and I get one of these whenever I do something good. Right? It's like getting a lottery ticket. It's like, you know, I, I went to church today. Bing. I got a chance. Because he's up there. And he saw what I did. And he's the one that hands that stuff out. He's the one who determines whose numbers come up right. So, you know, uh, that's, that's the deal. And you know what? Hey, I, uh, I didn't yell at my kids this morning. Bing, here's another one. And one of these days, one of these days, it's going to be my time. It will be my time. This is like the reverse of retribution theology. It's I scratch God's back, he scratches mine. But it's still this idea that the world is big and we have to somehow get God interested in what we're doing. Like he's, he's out there and he's busy. You know, you don't have time. So I'm going to take my one in one billion chances that today's going to be the day. I'm going to keep, in the meantime, lining up lottery tickets 
so that at the very least I can cash them in when I get to the pearly gates. But in the meantime, whatever goes on down here, and if it doesn't go my way up down here, then I believe that I'll get my lottery ticket up there. See, we live in this world, we're really comfortable, more comfortable with the idea of free will than we are the sovereignty of God, which is a fancy word for just simply saying God has the divine prerogative. He, he can choose to act as he sees fit. He governs the world and can do what he wants to. And, and I think we're more comfortable with free will because we're more comfortable trusting ourselves than we are in trusting God. Right? I mean, sovereignty requires and embracing it as good news, which is how scripture sees it, requires me to believe two things. One, that God is in control. Number two, that he's good. So ironically, what I believe is I may not be in control, but I feel like i got some control, and I do believe I'm good. So therefore, I'll pick this one and a half here versus the one over here, where I'm not sure if he's good or not. He's sometimes so big and overwhelming I don't know if he's paying attention or not. So I think I'm going to kind of do, or I'm going to take it in a blender. I'm going to form a hybrid, like a milkshake of theology and just kind of sip on mostly trusting myself, trusting God when I'm at the end of myself. So God is like a, a, a vitamin supplement. He's supplemental insurance for our egos and our feelings of security in the world. Well, that's not biblical. You know, when confronted with situations that we struggle to explain, I have them just like everybody else. In fact, I often have more because I get all of yours too. You guys ask me. And I am very comfortable saying, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why that happened. I can tell you what I do know. God is in control and he's good. And that's what I wish I could get through to Naomi, which she comes to that conclusion down the road. Spoiler alert. But in the moment, in the moment, she does not feel that way. She feels like, God's in control, but he's mean. He is the great school principal in the sky. And he, he's still, he's old school. He'll hand out the swats. So I don't know if she thinks that maybe God's mad because she went to Moab. I don't know if, or because they went to Moab and they weren't supposed to. I don't know what she thinks. She doesn't give a reason why. Naomi's struggle isn't a lot different than many of ours. She believes that God superintends the universe. That's good. However, she sees her plight as the active hand of God against her. Now, in general, culturally, we live in a world that denies the sovereignty of God. Events are kind of seen as a result of this kind of a crash of independent action, free will agents kind of clashing together, or sometimes just even random events in the universe. That something could be ordained or patterned by the divine creator does not really get a lot of consideration out there. Therefore, life is what we make of it. We free agents, we can control our destinies through a sheer determination of our wills. On the whole, the biblical perspective teaches us that while God grants human beings free will in many circumstances, it remains his and he reserves the right to intervene as he sees fit. And I'm going to go ahead and assert to you that that is fantastic news. It is great news. 
We pray because we believe that God is great and can and will do something. Right? If he won't or he can't, prayer is fairly, uh, I mean, pointless, really, I guess is the word I'm looking for. We pray because we believe he is great and wise and thoroughly better at determining what should happen and that he alone possesses the power to change things that we cannot change. So that's true then when we are suffering, the biggest question is not why am I suffering, it's who will I trust? Our friends, we can trust them like Job, thankfully he never did. Uh, Our sense of justice, I don't think God's fair. Or do we trust in God's goodness and his perfection, his irresistible might, his perfect justice, his never-ending steadfast love for us? Trust, not answers, is our greatest ally when we're suffering. There's a story, it's kind of obscure from the life of David. I gave you one last week. Here's another obscure David story that we'll talk about uh, this morning. You can find it in First Chronicles 21, or I think the, the uh, parallels in 2 Samuel 24. David is nervous because he's fighting battles all the time. And you can tell he's getting nervous because he says, you know what? We, what I, I need to know how many soldiers I got. Would you go out, Joab, and, and take a census? Joab goes, I don't think I'd do that, boss. And David goes, yeah, do it anyway. And Joab's like, ah, you sure you want to do this? Because he knew he wasn't supposed to do it because of what it says is, I'm trusting in my own army, so my own power, my own might. I don't trust that God's going to give us the victory. I want to know how many guys, how many swords, how many shields, how many helmets do I have? So I can, I can, I can have control of the situation instead of trusting that God's going to give us the victory, as he has until now. So Joab does as he's told. He goes out. It takes him nine months and 20 days. That's a long time. Figured he probably fought several battles in between then. But Joab comes back, gives him the count. You got 800,000, boss. 500,000 in Judah. And it says that David's conscience starts to bother him. He realizes that God is probably not particularly happy with what he has done. And so he goes to God and says, God... I realize what I just did. I, I, I took uh, control. I, I demonstrated a lack of faith. And so God comes back to him and says through a prophet, all right, you're right. What you did was sinful. So you get your pick. I wish he'd do this uh, with me. I'd love to have this. You get your pick of punishments. I mean, doesn't it sound like your dad when you were in fourth grade or something? It's like you want the belt or you want the... You want to not eat dinner or you want to, you know, whatever the case is. God says to him, you get your pick. Uh, You can have three years of famine, three days of plague in in the camp, or you can be on the run from your enemies for three years. Your choice, David. And then in a great moment of faith, an eye-opening experience. Listen to the words of David. It's not on the screen, but I'll, I'll read it to you. David says, I am in a desperate situation. But let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Don't let me fall into human hands. Listen to that. Do you understand what he's saying? He's like, even though I know you're punishing me, I would rather be in your hands to be punished than to be in the hands of humans. 
That's, that's, that's a trust in the goodness of God. He said, I don't, just don't put me in the hands of humans. I'll take God. So even though he knows God's going to punish him, and God does very severely after, in, in the rest of the story, he says, no, I want to be in God's hands. I, I don't, human beings are not, are not good. My enemies will, will crush me. I'll take God. I would rather be in God's hands for punishment, even though I know he's upset with me, than in the hands of human beings, which may or may not be upset with me. David would prefer to be in the hands of an angry God than an angry people. Not because God can or won't do anything, but because he says, because God's mercy is great. God's mercy is great. He, it doesn't get more merciful. He says, I'll, I'll, take, I'll throw myself on the mercy of the court here because the court is merciful. Not, not the jury. The jury, the jury, <laughs> all sorts of stuff can happen with the jury. I, on the heavenly court, I will throw myself. Whenever you feel like you're at the end of your rope, remember this. It is better to be in the hands of God than anywhere else. Period. Period. Okay. It doesn't matter if he's mad at you, happy with you. It's always better to be in the hands of God. Always. And that is exactly where we are. Exactly where we are, sisters and brothers. And that is good news. For Ruth and Naomi, they are beginning to learn that just because they're suffering, that doesn't mean that God is against them or God has abandoned them. He's right there with them, working gently every day to provide for them. They'll see down the road how God worked their steps out in such a way that every day he was taking care of them in some way. And they'll stand back. I mean, Paul said it centuries later when he said, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. Romans 11.33. Satan wants God to be this idea that we discuss. And if he can't get that, then he wants us to make God appear that we get upset with when we're suffering. Not a sovereign God that we trust with reckless abandon, with love of heart and mind and soul and strength. He wants us to focus on our pain like somebody who, who slams their thumb with a hammer by accident. All they can feel is that at the moment. Focus on your pain. Don't focus on the fact that you know you're going to live and you know that it's not the end of the world. And don't focus on the fact that God is out there and watching and good. I don't want you to think about that. I want you to think about how bad that hurts. That's all I want you to think about. So keep thinking about it. Isn't this bad? Isn't this awful? Isn't this sad? Isn't this, uh, hey, look at how broke you are. Hey, look at how you messed your life up. Hey, look at that. Look at, look at how they left you and didn't give you anything, you know, in return for all the years of love and compassion that you gave them. Just keep going. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, 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 boom. He doesn't want you to, he doesn't want you to think about anything else. Why would he want you to think about the merciful love of God? Why would he want you to think about the fact that God ultimately is in control and is working for your good? He doesn't want you to think about that. So put the hammer down. Put the hammer down. And if you feel like somebody's whacking your thumb, just remember, there's a time for mourning, and there's a time for dancing, and that while it may seem dark, and is dark, it's not forever, it's not forever. 
we remember that as we go through suffering, we do so with a limited perspective of what's actually going on. So we trust God, whose love for us is demonstrated on the cross. It teaches us that while we may not yet know why, why we are enduring what we are, we know what it isn't. And it's not that he doesn't love us. God's love has is, is, is been well illustrated and sealed for eternity with the blood of Jesus. And that then he's earned the right to be trusted. He's good. And he loves us. We remember that his ways are not our ways. And that he will work all things together for the good of those who love him. Now, by the end of, of chapter 2, um, I got going there. I lost my own spot in here. Um, into chapter 2, Naomi will be praising God. However, at the end of chapter 1, she begins to judge God by Friday, so to speak, when Sunday is yet to come. So if you were suffering here this morning in a Friday of the heart, don't let the pain that you're suffering convince you that there is no Sunday. There is. And it is on its way. There's a young man from an impoverished background, dreaming of a better life for himself and his family than the life that he had growing up. He saved all, of, all the money that he could, and he went deeply into debt to launch a grocery startup in a town called New Salem. His partner, though, had an alcohol problem and ended up so far in the hole that he began referring to the debt that they acquired, ironically, as the national debt. And he gave up on being a successful businessman. It took him more than a decade to pay off his failed business. So he turned away from that. He went into law and then into politics. And then in 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected president. He was an avid Shakespeare fan, and his favorite quote came from Hamlet. There is a divinity that shapes our ends, rough you them as we may. He came to believe this deeply about his own life and about the nation he led. So he goes on, his second inaugural address is an amazingly profound reflection on how God was at work in the Civil War in ways more mysterious and profound than any human being could fathom. But think about this. What a loss it could have been if the doors to that little grocery store had stayed open. See what I'm saying? At the moment, it seems bad, but then in the end, it takes a different turn. And you start to see then all of a sudden, boy, I'm kind of glad that it didn't happen that way. The point is, don't judge God's actions just by Friday when the point of them can only be seen on Sunday. Let's go back then to that Friday of the soul in Bethlehem where Naomi is. She's sitting there broken and faithful Ruth. They find themselves in Israel at the beginning now of the barley harvest. Everybody heard what happened, and all they seem to do is shake their head. You know how it is when you see somebody come in and they've had so much loss. It's like, oh, poor son, there she was. Bless her heart. I'm just so proud of her for being able to get out of bed in the morning and come to church. It's that kind of vibe there in Bethlehem. Everybody sees them and, oh, we heard what happened to Elimelech. And Milan and Kilion. How are you doing, Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. Name change. Remember. I'm bitter. I'm not full anymore. I'm not who you remember that left here. The pain has changed me. Well, so we pick up the story. Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. 
a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to, underline that part in your Bibles, she just happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. It just so happened, just so happens all the time in the kingdom of God. She doesn't just happen to show up in Boaz's field. Boaz just happens to be there. Just so happened, she was wandering into a field. It's the part that belonged to Boaz. Who happened to be a good and noble man. There weren't many in Israel. We know that because God had just sent a three-year famine on the land because there were nobody righteous. So she wanders into the field of the one righteous guy in Israel, as far as we know. And we know that the people that work around him uh, aren't great characters because he has to tell them, you don't put a finger on Ruth. You don't treat her like everybody else. Which means, don't treat her the way that you treat everybody else. They're scoundrels. But she wanders into his field, who just happens to be a kinsman. You ever experienced that holy coincidence? Just so happened. Just so happened. Just so happened that I made a decision I was going to stay at Pepperdine for grad school. And on the first day of school, I'm working in the church office. This little redhead comes into the office. And I meet her on her first day on the campus. Just so happened. You know? Almost went other places. Decided not to. Went back. Was glad I did. You know, you, with, the, with the benefit of age, you do get the chance to go back and look at how you see the hands of God all the way behind you. It's hard to get perspective on your journey when you're still sitting in your driveway. You, you really have to go get on the road and get down the roadways before you can look behind you and see how far you've come. And Naomi and Ruth are about to, to experience this joy. Remember we talked last week about the providence of God and uh, the story of Joseph. In Genesis chapter 50, verses 18 to 20, it says, His brothers also came and fell down. And we're going to do this, and I'm going to read you a passage from a preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon and how he helps you understand this through the story of Joseph. So this is the text. His brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? He's like, No. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive like they are today. Joseph looks back and he says, I know what you tried to do to me. You thought you were just beating up on your younger brother, getting rid of somebody you were jealous of, but God was using that event to help save people from famine down the road. He's able to look backwards. So here's Spurgeon. I, I won't, I'll spare you the big, deep voice in the British accent that he would have had in the 1800s. We all agree, he says, with Joseph's declaration, it was God that sent me hither. But now if we notice each of the little ways through which this great result was brought to pass, we see God in each of them. One day, Joseph's brethren are gone out with the sheep. Jacob wants to send them. Why does he send Joseph? He was his darling son. He loved him better than all his brethren. Why does he send him away? No one knows, but he sends him, however. 
then why should it have happened at that particular time that Jacob would want to send at all? However, he did want to send, and he sent Joseph. A mere accident, you'll say, but quite necessary as the basement of structure. Joseph goes. His brethren are in want of pasture and therefore leave Shechem, where Joseph expected to find them and journey on to Dothan. Why go to Dothan? Was not the whole land before them? However, Joseph goes there. He arrives at Dothan just when they're thinking of him and his dreams, and they put him into a pit. As they are about to eat bread, some Ishmaelites come by. Why did they come there at all? Why did they come at that particular time? Why were they going to Egypt? Why might they not have been going another way? Why was it that the Ishmaelites wanted to buy slaves? Why might they not have been trading in some other commodity other than slaves? However, Joseph is sold. But he's not disposed of on the road to Egypt. He's taken to the land. Why is it that Potiphar was to buy him? Why is it that Potiphar has a wife at all? Why is it again that Potiphar's wife should be so full of lust? Why should Joseph get into prison? How is it that the baker and the butler should offend their master? All chances the world has it, but every link necessary to make the chain. They do both offend their master. They are both put into prison. How is it that they both dream? How is it that Joseph interprets the dreams? How is it the butler forgets him? Why? Just because if he had recollected him, it would have spoiled it all. Why is it Pharaoh's dreams? How can dreams be under the arrangement of God's providence? However, Pharaoh does dream. The butler then thinks of Joseph. Joseph is brought out of prison and taken before Pharaoh. But take away, here we go, take away any of those simple circumstances, break any one of the links of the chain, and the whole of the design is scattered to the winds. You cannot get the machine to work if any of the minute cogs of the wheels are taken away. Everything is disarranged. Now here's the payoff. I think it seems very clear to any man who will dissect not only that, but any other history he likes to fix upon, that there must be a God in the little accidents and dealings of daily life, as well as in the great results that tell upon the page of history and are recounted in our songs. God is to be seen in the little things. God is to be seen in the little things. Here's how scripture puts it in a few of the greatest hits. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Romans 8, 28, we know this one well, and we know that those, uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Psalm 145, 15 and 16, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living hand or every living thing. The Christian doctrine of providence says essentially that God is actively involved in the world in ways we both can see and ways we can't see. And then God goes on and he provides for the faithful. He always provides for the faithful. His children will never go hungry. When Boaz finds out who Ruth is, uh, and a little bit about her story, though most of the people in the village seem to already know, he shows mercy to her in many different ways. He tells Ruth, I don't want you to glean in anybody else's field. Uh, I want you to drink the water that the young men have drawn. He tells the young men, don't touch her. Ruth then falls on her face and asks, why is being so nice to her? Here is the response. This is chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Uh-oh, the Lord, the Lord 
repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You see, it just so happens that Boaz believes in the God of Israel and understands exactly what's happening. That God was providing for her in Naomi because she was now under his wing. And so then we become now aware that we can become instruments of the providence of God. That sometimes when you help a brother or sister, you're you're acting out what God is wanting to see happen in the universe. It's not that he's, he's opening my mouth specifically and putting each word in there. And saying, no, don't, don't say this. Say it with a British accent or say it, say it in the King James, Tim, not in the NIV. Or, it's not that. It's, it's the, those, those promptings of the Holy Spirit that say, reach out to that person. And then you do it and God provides for them by using you. So Boaz becomes an instrument of the providence of God in the life of Ruth and Naomi. That's how he sees it. God is helping you and I'm here to help you in God's name. I'm an instrument of the providence of God. When we experience the providence of God, it is different than chance, it's different than fate, it's different than dumb luck. It's God providing for us and acknowledging it. Boaz invites her to dine with the reapers at his table and then lets her essentially go on a shopping spree for grain. Take all you can carry. And so she does. And when she returns, Naomi is absolutely stunned. She wants to know, all right, some dude took favor in you. Who is it? And Ruth says, Boaz. And here's what Ruth, or Naomi says. Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord. Oh, wait, God's back in the picture now. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Look at that. It just so happened again. You're not going to believe this. He's one of our redeemers. We have to hit pause there for this morning. But this is when the story starts to become clear. And what was a very bad impressionist painting of the future starts to become a lot more realist. Almost a photograph. Oh, my goodness. I see how God has taken care of us now. I see. But leave with this today, sisters and brothers. We can be confident of this. Because God is in control and because he is good, that wherever you go this week and when you're watching the details of your lives happen, it just so happens, will happen a lot. And when it does, remember that it is God. It is God that is helping you. Take each step. Live each day. May we praise his name uh, both in word and deed as we go forth this week. Let's gather around the Lord's table at this time. And we're going to remember the great provision of God in the person and work of Jesus. You should have received the elements when you came in. Uh, If you didn't and you'd like to have them just kind of do one of these deals we'll be happy to bring them to you we have ushers doing that at this time so just raise your hand but if you want to talk about the single greatest act of provision ever it is the singing at the cross of Jesus Christ that we remember now with bread and cup which symbolizes his body and blood and we do this every week here at New Vintage Church
right now I'd like to offer a word of prayer and we'll reflect and take the supper together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, with bread and cup now we say thank you for making a way, for moving things from Friday to Sunday. For when we did not have a way, making a way for us, Lord. Uh, we ask you to uh, be with us, to help us to trust more. And when we're suffering, to, to, to lean on our trust that you are good and that you're in control. Rather than trust in our own devices and our own, uh, however many soldiers we think we've got in our camp. But Father, instead to trust that you will give us victory. And that even if the moment seems dark, that there is light on the way. Right now we remember Jesus Christ, who is our light. And we pray this in his name. Amen.